What is humanism? Humanism is an outlook or system of thought attaching prime importance to human rather than divine or supernatural matters. Humanism stresses the goodness of human beings, the common needs they have, and humanism seeks man-made ways to solve humanity's problems. Humanism seeks unity and oneness. Now this is what Christ desired and prayed earnestly for in his church in John chapter 17. Great difference between these two goals, however, is that humanism seeks unity apart from God. I find it interesting during this time in history how we see messages proclaiming we're all in this together and signs outside local schools that say things like one tribe, one community. We want to believe that we're in solidarity, that we all think and feel alike. And yet, despite these ideals, in spite of these proclamations of oneness, we've never been more splintered and fragmented in our opinions. Perhaps you've even seen signs in yards that say things like, be kind. Well, that's a good message, isn't it? The problem is, anyone is, is anyone capable of fulfilling that exhortation, be kind, apart from Christ? What motivates someone to be kind, particularly in the face of a culture that is increasingly unkind? Not long ago, something horrific was reported in the news, and a friend of mine on social media commented on it. Be good humans. Guys, be good humans, she implored. Well, Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Our heart lies to us. It's not just a little off, a little out of line. The Bible says it is terribly, atrociously, vilely diseased. And that's the trouble. There's nothing good in this world or in human nature apart from Christ. We only have degrees of evil. But we kid ourselves into thinking that we are good people deep down because we compare ourselves to those who make chilling headlines and we congratulate ourselves on the fact that we are not like them. Any individual is capable of acting on the wickedness of his heart, whether it be adultery or letting a curse fly out of his mouth or taking something that doesn't belong to him, and then we justify it so that the evil doesn't seem so bad. But when we humans get a revelation of God as he really is, not how we project our human reasoning onto him, we see ourselves in our true state, and it's usually distressful. Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his glory filled the temple. And Isaiah's reaction was what? He said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When Job encountered the manifest Lord, he said, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I take back what I said, and I repent in dust and ashes. Remember when Peter and the disciples fished all night but caught nothing? And at Jesus' command, they threw the nets over to the other side? The miraculous great catch of fish that happened produced in Peter a revelation of Jesus that he prior to had not had. And the Bible says that he fell at Jesus' feet, saying, Get away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. John says that when he saw the glorified Christ of Revelation, I fell at his feet as one dead. One of the reasons we need this great revelation of our Lord is so that we can see everything else, including ourselves, in its true state. In Genesis 11, humanism shows up early on mankind's scene. Now the whole earth had one language, 
And as men migrated in the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. So the plain of Shinar lay between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. The name Shinar indicates that these people were Hamites, descendants of Noah's son Ham, because in chapter 10, we were told that it was the Hamites who settled in the land of Shinar of Babylonia, or Mesopotamia as we know it today. The late Bible teacher Ray Steadman notes that the inventiveness of the Hamitic people becomes evident. These were technologically gifted people. Their native inventiveness becomes evident in the way they adapted to the environment in which they lived. They did not find rocks and stones to build with, such as they had in the land where they had previously lived, so they made bricks out of dirt and clay. Later they discovered the process of burning them, first in the sun and then in a furnace, until they became hard and impermeable bricks, such as we know it today. All this is given to us in one sentence in the Bible, but we know from history that it occupied a period of time. Man did not discover all this at one time, but learn how to make bricks and later how to burn them. They also lacked lime for cement, so could not make mortar as we know it, but some inventive soul among them discovered a tar pit, which was filled with natural asphalt. These are common throughout the Middle East. They discovered that the tar was sticky, and they used this natural bitumen, this asphalt, for mortar. They then had a substitute for stones and cement. Stepman goes on to note that their success in doing these things fired up their ambition. This almost always happens when they discovered that they could use materials other than the natural ones they prior had for building and could invent their own. They were fired up with a desire to put these to work. Now you might ask, what's the crime here? What was the sin in all of this? Well, the answer lies in verse 4, come let us make a name for ourselves. The idea is not that the name of the Lord is lifted up but that a name is given to the people, to humankind. Does any of this sound familiar to you? Are we seeing today a relationship between technological advances and a push for ideas that exalt themselves above the knowledge of God? We see humanism at work in the secular world, in our education system, and we see it in science and all over Hollywood and the expectation that celebrities are worshipped. And the media also helps to achieve these things, that we worship humanity and human beings above our creator. We see humanism in the arts and in politics. But what about the church? Do you see humanism at work? We took a couple of road trips this summer across the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, and we were in towns and cities all across the state. And you can tell something of what's going on inside the church by the signs you see outside it, can't you? It's my observation, based on the dozens and dozens of churches we drove by in the last six weeks, that many, if not most, churches are mimicking the secular world around them rather than trailblazing the kingdom of heaven into our culture. A word I see a lot outside churches nowadays is peace. Well, that's good if it's involving the Prince of Peace, but there's no peace outside of knowledge of the Prince of Peace. And that message needs to be clear. The kingdom of heaven is righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Ghost. If the Holy Ghost isn't present, there's no peace. 
And as Bible teacher Derek Prince once pointed out, righteousness precedes peace in that verse. If you're not living a righteous life in Christ, you're not going to experience peace. Another sign I saw outside churches and even in yards was the phrase, love thy neighbor. Well, that sounds pretty biblical. In fact, it is biblical. So what's the problem? Well, the phrase love thy neighbor is being used to push political agendas. In fact, one church in particular we drove by went on to say that you were not loving your neighbor if you didn't comply with certain behaviors the government mandated that up to a few months ago were virtually unheard of here in the States. Love thy neighbor is also being bandied about by media personalities who openly mock Christians and hate the name of Jesus. Just like the voices that haven't cracked open a Bible in decades, perhaps if ever, they all know the verse, do not judge, because it fits an agenda, and therefore they can quote it and thus manipulate, they figure, simple-minded Christians into compliance. Pastor Jake Hale of Lancaster pointed out recently that the first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and all your strength. The second commandment is to love thy neighbor as thyself. If you take the second commandment without practicing the first commandment, you end up with humanism. I'll say that again. If you preach and practice the second commandment, love thy neighbor, without first practicing and preaching the first commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your mind and all your strength, you wind up with humanism. There's very much a thought process in the Western church that we, the humans, will decide how we want our services to look, how long we want them to go, down to the minute, and we will put into place programs that minister to the needs of other humans. You might say, well, what else would we do? How should we operate? Well, scripture gives us a blueprint. First of all, Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. God's house is a house of prayer. Again, deferring to the insight of my friend, Pastor Kale, if your church isn't a house of prayer, then your church really isn't God's house. Remember that the early church devoted itself to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, that's getting together, assembling, not social distancing, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. They devoted themselves or spent all their time in these four pursuits. The great commission of Paul and Barnabas being sent to the Gentiles, on which the faith of our entire civilization is predicated, including your salvation and mine most likely, was preceded, it says, by the apostles ministering to and fasting before the Lord. That's Acts 13, verse 2. It was only after they had first ministered to the Lord did he speak and tell them the great mission on which they were to embark. Likewise, our Lord himself was always going away someplace private to pray. He told the disciples, watch and pray. So you hear a good bit of talk in the church about being like Jesus. But if you're like Jesus at all, first and foremost, you're always taking time to pray. Sometimes it's alone and sometimes it's with other disciples of his. Of his. Leonard Ravenhill said he could tell you the size of a man by the kind of prayer life he had. The leaders of the church where I attend are very involved, very visible in the community. They also have a vibrant, near-constant prayer life. There's prayer in the sanctuary before our church service begins. We pray during the service together and often at altar calls following the service. There are prayer groups that meet throughout the week, corporate prayer Wednesday evenings. We regularly pray with our church community and with our international brothers and sisters on social media and with those across the states when teleconference calls. 
See, prayer isn't just us crying out to God, as vital as that is. Prayer is hearing from the Lord. What does he want us to do? How does he want us to worship him? Should we hold Sunday evening services outside our church building or in the community park? Which ministries does he want us to support? And how does he want us to appropriate the tithes and offerings? How do we help this family with its unique, unique situation? What does he want his church to look like amid the fears and what ifs of a virus that's been hijacked by the media and by certain politicians to propagate all kinds of rationale and agendas? These would be impossible questions for us as humans without the Lord's wisdom. Without hearing from heaven, how could we possibly move forward in confidence that we were doing the right thing? How do we have any fruitfulness apart from him? See, my experience from being in many churches is that we put forth our best ideas and we call on God to bless them. And then we relegate him back to the corner we've saved for him and we keep on with our own man-made church. We want to be safe because we have this idea that we need to be welcoming to others. That's humanist philosophy. And that the Lord might do something that's uncomfortable or offensive. And then they'd go away and not feel welcome. Even our worship have you ever noticed how much of our contemporary Christian music is me-centric in nature? Lord, bless me. Lord, I'm in a bad way, but you'll meet my need. Lord, I keep slipping and falling, but it's okay because you never give up on me, Lord. I've noticed a significant difference in services where the worship is centered on Jesus Christ instead of our own human frailty. When he is lifted up, he will draw all men unto himself, Scripture says. When he is elevated in worship, our own joy is as well. Lean not on your own understanding, Proverbs 3.5 tells us. For what's ahead, what is coming, we dare not. Rather, trust in Jehovah with all your heart. In other words, rely on him completely. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Submit to him completely. It's the only way. Remember the old hymn, Trust and Obey? But we never can prove the delights of his love until all on the altar we lay. I want to put this out to you who are listening. I have a strong sense that someone needs to hear this today. Perhaps you are struggling with staying at a church where you're not sure that God is being given his due place of worship and majesty. Perhaps his holiness is not emphasized. The simple message of the cross has been distorted somehow. I believe there are many Christians out there who are sitting week after week discomfited and dissatisfied in some way. And maybe you feel guilty about that. Perhaps you've attended this church most of your Christian life and you feel bad about the idea of leaving. If this is you, I am asking that you put your feelings before the Lord and ask him what he would have you do. If you're to stay, that he'd give you the grace. And if you're to go, that he'd give you the courage. That he would open doors. And I am praying that you have release to assemble with other believers who are going after him wholeheartedly in truth and in righteousness and in grace. Not that they are perfect, but we need the fire of God to cleanse us and to embolden us and to free us to free others. And we need more than ever to walk with him in such a way as not to fall away in these last days.